Well, it's going to be a short intro for today's sermon. In fact, uh, that was it. So we'll be in Revelation chapter 14 today. Uh, there's a lot of uh, stuff in here, so we're just going to dive in, starting with verse 1, which is a very good place to start. Uh, here the author, uh, we assume John, uh, says, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women for they are virgins. It is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Well, the setting for this part of the vision is Mount Zion, uh, which is mentioned in the Old Testament as a location near Jerusalem. It's come to be fairly synonymous with uh, Jerusalem, either earthly or heavenly, and this setting seems to be more of the heavenly uh, Jerusalem. We're, we're kind of still in this parenthesis of um, of the book of Revelation where things aren't necessarily completely chronological. It's describing some different parts um, of the tribulation and, and the end times. So uh, we've encountered this number before, 144,000, back in chapter 7. And there the context was uh, specifically Jewish, a depiction, it seems, of an army of the Lord. These are people sealed by God, uh, maybe still with this with this depiction or connotation of an elite army, and they have names and uh, well names n- uh, written on their foreheads, uh, the name of the Lamb and the name of the Father. And when we encounter names written on foreheads or even hands, it it signifies allegiance, ownership. It signifies who uh, they worship. And so these 144,000 who have been redeemed are allied with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. The author heard a sound, uh, apparently so unique, he had to try and describe it three different ways. Uh, sound of a roar of water, sound of thunder, sound of harps. And this sound was a song of worship that could only be sung, that could only be learned by these redeemed. Now, I have a lot of trouble learning songs in and of itself, um, but uh, I don't think it's because it was difficult lyrics or difficult tune. It's an experience. It's the experience of uh, this particular group of the redeemed. Now, again, there's lots of different ideas on, on what this number represents, whether it is a specific number of Jews who are redeemed during uh, these end times or this, these hard times, tribulation. Uh, or whether this is talking about um, a, a number of the redeemed during that time, Jewish, non-Jewish, or whether it's talking about all of the redeemed. Um, kind of anywhere you look, it, it sort of fits. There are, um, there are aspects of this that apply to all of the redeemed. Um, so that's kind of where I lean, but I'm open uh, to being wrong. Um, this, uh, this idea of the redeemed, again, sort of this elite um, army even, 
um, has another characteristic mentioned here, and that is virginity. Um, now, I don't, I don't want anyone to get the wrong idea that marriage is somehow defilement um, or a bad thing. It's a wonderful thing. Uh, God instituted it. It's wonderful. He instituted sex, too. It's wonderful in the right context. But what I think this, this symbolizes is this intense devotion, a single-mindedness, uh, pun intended, of devotion to the Lord. Right? Any, a lot of times throughout Scripture when you, when you um, see sin described or personified, it's, it's often in a sexual context. And so um, this idea that the redeemed are wholly devoted to Jesus only. Again, marriage is awesome, but it is a relationship that takes a lot of time and a lot of work and a lot of energy. And so this picture here is simply of, of the redeemed following Jesus only, the lamb, wherever he goes. Um, they're also described as first fruits. This is an agricultural term um, that means the first fruits, right? The, the first things out of the ground or, or out of the womb that, that uh, were to be dedicated to God in gratitude for his provision, um, an offering. And these redeemed are really an offering. They're offering their lives uh, to God and they are pure as indicated by the virginity and truth. And what comes out of their mouths rather than false worship and false teaching would be praise and the gospel, which is actually where we go next as we continue in this vision. So verse 6, John continues on and he says, Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. There are a number of angels throughout this passage, I, th I think six, if I remember right, um, each with a role or some kind of personification of a role. Um, these first angels fly directly overhead, literally translated mid-heaven, um, so kind of right up there, the highest point of the sky that we can see, um, right up near SpaceX. And the point is that all the world um, would, would see and hear them. Right, this message is going out to all the world, which is confirmed by that language of uh, the gospel going out to every nation and tribe and language and people. Um, not necessarily that the angel themselves are going to do that, but again, a representation of what our job as believers is to get the gospel out to the world. It's phrased a little differently in this passage, though. A lot of times we, we hear the gospel, Right? Gospel literally meaning good news. But, um, but it also often had the context early on in its usage of a proclamation of victory. Uh, coming, coming out of battle back into the city and, and there's this gospel, uh, Greek euangelion. And, uh, and it's this proclamation of victory. Um, in some ways, judgment of whoever they were victorious over. And in a lot of ways... Uh, it takes that tone in this passage, right? So it's, it's not just that God loved the world so much that he sent his only son to die 
as a sacrifice to pay for our sins, but it's phrased a little bit differently here. It's more like a command than an invitation, as we often see it. It doesn't make it any less true. Um, again, it can be a, a proclamation of victory and judgment. Uh, and here's, here's what the gospel is phrased like here. Fear God, give him glory, worship him. And the reasoning is that God's judgment has come. Fear of God should be a motivation to turn to him and, and pledge our allegiance to him. And when we've done that, to praise him for who he is. Again, not out of fear that he's going to harm us, but the type of fear that is the respect and admiration and worship because of who he is. We encounter another angel, um, a second, who followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. In the Old Testament, uh, Babylon was a city of excessive sin, uh, immorality, idolatry, outright opposition towards God's people. Uh, They conquered and essentially destroyed Israel and took a lot of them away. Um, And so that also became kind of synonymous with this idea of the world's system, uh, whatever that may be. Uh, Some have seen Babylon as Rome, uh, which would be fairly fitting at that time also. City of excessive sin, immorality, idolatry, um, eventually uh, very oppositional to to the Jews and Israel and Christianity. and so this, this name Babylon, whatever, whatever it represents, again, becomes fairly synonymous with the system of, of evil and sin that's based on world principles and rejection of God. Uh, Babylon fell, Rome fell, as will every other city and culture that's based on the world's principles. That's just how it works. And, um, and this angel pronounces judgment on it, specifically calling out uh, one specific sin, sexual immorality. Uh, again, I think to represent the whole of the sinful nature of, of that system. Um, but it's not, it's not hard to, uh, to see that as a representation of how depraved we can end up being. Uh, we're pretty obsessed as a culture with sex and normalized sexual sin, um, Again, it's a sin that, that can easily represent how far society uh, can go. And sexual purity is incredibly difficult, um, which is why I think it was underscored in describing those who follow God. Right? The 144,000 uh, described earlier in the passage were virgins. It was, a, it was a stark way of pointing out that faithfulness and devotion uh, to God alone. And if you think about it, um, sin is spiritual adultery. Right? Those, that, those that betray and cheat on God not only drink the cup of sexual passion, um, but unfortunately they will also drink another cup. As we continue on in this vision, it, it uh, reads, And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. 
And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. If this is your first time here, welcome. Um, we, we go through books of the Bible, um, and we preach what's there. Uh, so, um, no, it, it's always a little uncomfortable to talk about the fire and brimstone, um, but that's what we're encountering in this vision. And we don't want to glide over it or soften it or anything else because it's there, it's in God's word, and it's true. You know, it's been, it's been said that God gives us exactly what we want. If we want a relationship with God, he gives us that forever. If we want nothing to do with God, he also gives us that forever. Now, I'm not trying to make it all about us and our choice. I know it's a little more complicated than that, but, but there are consequences of idolatry. And the consequences are real, and they're permanent, and they're terrible. Those that reject God and worship a false god or its image are going to drink the cup of God's anger. This image of, of wine uh, is an interesting one. In, uh, it, it would often be diluted uh, in those days um, just to kind of, um, well, probably extend it and, uh, and also have some of the benefits of killing things in the, in the water. But, um, but wine would be uh, diluted in the days that that was written. And in a lot of ways, I think throughout history, you can see God, I don't know if this is the right way to put it, but diluting his wrath throughout history. Right? But there is a final judgment. There's a final judgment and the full potency of God's wrath and anger will be revealed at the end. This doctrine of hell is one of the doctrines that uh, Christians like to avoid if they choose to acknowledge it at all or at least to soften it or make it more palatable. And on the surface, some of these, some of these twists seem attractive. The idea of universalism, where, where everybody gets to go to heaven after all. That sounds awesome. Or... Uh, annihilationism, where those that reject God just simply cease to exist. That sounds much better than what we actually read in Scripture. Even though there are a lot of parts of Revelation that seem very symbolic, it's pretty hard to deny the permanence and reality of hell, especially in uh, comparison with things that, for instance, Jesus himself said. And this is actually part of the gospel. Right? The, the good news about Jesus isn't really that great a news unless you know the bad news. Sin is idolatry. It's worshiping Satan. So call it Satan, the beast, whatever you want. It's, it's all worshiping Satan if it's not worshiping God. It's pretty black and white. And what's described in this passage is what every single person deserves. That's what we deserve. We deserve to be tormented in fire and sulfur because of the things that we have done against a holy God. We need to remember and take great encouragement in the fact that Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath so that believers wouldn't have to. 
When Jesus is talking to some of his disciples in Matthew 20, 22, he says, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? He was talking about the cross and the sacrifice of his life and bearing the wrath of God so that we don't have to. That's very interesting when we start talking about judgment, we start talking about heaven and hell. I'm very inconsistent. I don't want to speak for you, but maybe you struggle with the same thing. I I love justice for others. I love mercy for me. If I make a mistake, I almost feel like I deserve mercy and grace, which is expressly the opposite of the definition of mercy and grace. You don't deserve mercy or grace. That's how it's mercy or grace. But if somebody else does something wrong, justice. I want them punished. Now, God embodies these traits perfectly. Right? He embodies justice and he embodies mercy perfectly. I think this was another convicting concept about uh, priorities. Just to use a, a relatively small but recent example, the, the Graceworks Church got broken into recently and some stuff was stolen. And my first reaction is, right, justice. Get this guy. Maybe we've got him on camera. We can get him, get our stuff back, and he can be punished. I don't think it's bad to desire justice. But shouldn't my first thought have been, wow, here's a guy who apparently cares nothing about anybody else. I'm assuming that his soul is destined for what we're reading about in this passage. Don't I want salvation for him first? Don't I want mercy for him like I've been able to experience because I've put my faith in Christ? Shouldn't that be my priority? And I really think it should be. I think that's the order that God calls us to because... Again, looking throughout history, that's the order that God has demonstrated. He desires salvation. He desires mercy for us and is patient. Oh, so patient with us. So we should desire salvation and mercy. And yet I think we can be very satisfied with God's justice. Because it is fair. It's in the midst of this judgment that the call for endurance comes to believers. We read here is a call for the endurance of the saints. Those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Now, I feel like people can endure just about anything for a time. I think the fact that there is an end should be incredibly motivating to the unbeliever to get their house in order and incredibly encouraging to the believer. This voice says that those who die in the Lord are blessed. 
Now, considering Revelation and some of the things that we've gone through, this may be a little bit more about martyrdom, but I don't think that's the only way to die in the Lord. Dying in the Lord can broadly mean dying as a believer, having placed your faith in Jesus. And it's a weird thing to look at death as a blessing. I'm sure that all of us have experienced some kind of death in our life, and it, it is tragic, and it's horrible. It's not supposed to be that way, and yet... Here, this voice from heaven says it's a blessing. How can that be? There are a lot of similarities between uh, the book of Genesis and the book of Revelation, book of beginnings, book of endings. And if you read in the first few chapters of Genesis, it really seems like humans were supposed to live forever in a garden paradise. (laughs) Sounds awesome. But then sin entered the world. And so did death as a result. And when you think about it, that was a blessing. Can you imagine living forever with a sinful heart in a sinful world? That sounds a lot like hell. It really does. But there is an end. And the encouragement for endurance comes because of that. There is an end, and you can endure for the rest of your life. John continues looking at these visions. He looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on a cloud, one like the sun, or one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud. Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. These last verses in the chapter uh, preview the end, like really the end. Uh, again, the, the last few chapters have been called a parenthesis in Revelation's uh, description of this tribulation time period. Uh, they haven't necessarily advanced the timeline, but rather have been visions of, of various pieces and parts during it. And this last part of the chapter illustrates the end like a harvest, or even potentially two harvests. Uh, the language is very much like a section in the book of Joel, and it seemed to, seems to describe a, gr- a grain harvest that we just read and a grape harvest that we'll read in the next few verses. Again, there's, there's some uh, discussion whether these are uh, different descriptions of the same judgment or actually two different judgments. Uh, some see these first verses, this grain harvest, as a, as a positive reaping of the harvest, gathering believers to Jesus. Uh, that's certainly possible can fit with scripture um, and that the next judgment would be judgment of, of uh, non-believers um, which again also fits in scriptures and that's pretty clear um, both views uh, coincide with the rest of scripture so I don't think we need to delve too much into it um, but the one who is doing the harvesting is described at least in this first judgment as one like a son of man again there's some debate as to whether this is Jesus since he calls himself that Uh, That's one of his titles, or if that's an angel, uh, sometimes it can be applied uh, to angels as well. Um, I tend to, you know, 51% think it seems to be Jesus. 
he also has a crown. Um, again, it doesn't rule out an angel, but Jesus is certainly the ultimate victor if we're talking about that type of crown. Um, and he had a, a sickle. Um, not my favorite sickle. I think cream sickle or fudge sickle would be my favorite. Um, but this one was pretty useful back in the day as well. Uh, used to harvest grain. And uh, in biblical uh, culture, a lot of language in scripture, harvesting was often associated with uh, judgment. Um, there's a, again, e- either way, right? There's a, a positive judgment uh, that can be taking, uh, taking the grain or a negative judgment as far as kind of destroying the field. So um, God sends a message through an angel to harvest the earth because it's ripe. It's time. Um, God is a timely God. There is a time for everything. And it is uh, his timing, and therefore it is perfect. Um, And Jesus, or this angel, obediently swings this sickle across the earth and reaps the earth. In the the final few verses, we see uh, that second vision of what the harvest was like, and it provides some more detail. In verse 17, we read, Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Okay, some of you are thinking, well, that's a little too much detail. Um, I can't blame you for thinking that. What's described here is, is kind of grotesque. It's meant to be. It's a terribly bloody end. I think it is interesting that that another angel uh, comes out of the temple of heaven, um, not a son of man. It's one of the things that leads people to believe that there are two different harvests. Um, but this, this angel gives an order to reap uh, from out of the altar. Uh, we've encountered the altar before in the book of Revelation. Uh, it's where prayers of, of martyrs uh, come forth as well. So there, there could very well be this representation of the call for justice from those who have been killed uh, out of their faith in God. This is a call for justice, and it's God's time for that. It's also interesting in this, in this passage that this is a picture of a grape harvest. And it doesn't seem, I'm not an expert on grapes or harvesting, but it doesn't seem like you would often use a sickle to harvest a lot of grapes. I did a, a, a small YouTube dive. Um, there are some really cool machines to harvest grapes that they didn't have back then. But you know, a lot of times you would pick them, and 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 yet here you you see this great sweeping motion of a sickle um, to harvest the grapes. Now, if you were harvesting grapes, you'd want to save the vines, right? Because you need them for the next year. And yet, I think that's the point of this whole passage: is that there's this there's this final harvest. Right? Scorched earth time. It's the end. Final judgment. 
And I said before, the language is very similar to that of Joel chapter 3, although there's a, a vast difference between the description of what God's rule looks like and what God's judgment looks like. We read in Joel 3, And in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. What flows in God's rule is sweet wine and milk and water. And what flows in God's judgment is, as we read here, blood. This is a final, apparently, obviously, bloody battle. And, spoiler alert, God will win it. Permanently. And without discussion. I want to circle back real quick um, to this concept of rest. We didn't hit it very hard in there because I wanted to come back to it, um, partly because I didn't want to end on the imagery of a river of blood five feet high, but also because it was one of the things that really stood out to me in this passage. It, it literally is the difference between heaven and hell in this passage. Rest versus no rest. There are a couple meanings to the title of this sermon, Endure for the Rest of Your Life. There's a, a quantity aspect and a quality aspect. So this whole passage is to be an encouragement for Christians to endure throughout the rest of their life. Quantity, right? Knowing that there is going to be an end. To endure the work of the gospel, which is hard. To endure persecution for beliefs, which is hard. It means for the rest of our lives, we need to rely upon the strength of God to endure. Working hard, laboring hard, knowing that the fruit of our labor carries on into eternity and into a final rest. That should be encouraging for the believer. This was written to believers. The other way that I think it should encourage us is in the process of enduring, the, the quality of life, if you will that we should take advantage of opportunities to rest in this life. The sharpening the saw principle that actually makes you more effective in your, in your work and in your labors. Uh, Abraham Lincoln is uh, quoted as saying, give me six hours to chop down a tree and I'll spend the first four sharpening the axe. I get it. Like sometimes you feel like you can't rest. Right? I, I can't rest. I'm too worried. I can't rest. You don't understand the pressures of my job or my family or school. I can't rest. I've got little ones. But if I'm honest with myself, I think there's a big difference between can't and don't. Resting isn't just good for us physically. It's good for us spiritually. The Sabbath rest concept the day a week that God instituted for the nation of Israel, um, taking a day uh, to trust God. It's always been an act of faith. And it was instituted by example, um, by God himself in creation, this idea of rest. Right? It's always been an act of faith. 
In an agricultural society, it would be an act of faith that God would still provide. What do you mean take a day off? It's harvest time. Yeah. It'll still be there on Sunday or Monday. It's trusting in God that even if we don't work 24-7, he's still going to provide for us. And I think it's still an act of faith. A time to focus on your relationship with God and what he's given you uh, to enjoy. Creation, family, friends, even your abilities. There are ways to rest that use your gifts. But it's, it's focusing on that rather than keeping up with the Joneses or trying to get ahead. So it's always been an act of faith. It always will be an act of faith. But I think one of the things um, in, in a broad scope that helps us to rest is endurance, being faithful, right? So endure for the rest of your life takes on a little bit of a different meaning this way. I kind of liken it to, to going to sleep after a hard day's work of physical labor, right? It just, it just feels like honest sleep and it's easier to get there. I know there are plenty of things in this world to stress us out. I mean, I don't know about you, but the past couple of years have done a number on me just in terms of stress level and, and Lord come quickly. It's insane out there. Which is maybe all the more reason why rest is important. And I think we can. Maybe we don't, but I think we can. And I think there's a certain um, ability for us to rest in knowing that our sins are forgiven and we're following our Heavenly Father. If we're enduring, if we are following after the Lamb, that's honest rest. Because the biggest stress, I'm not saying there aren't many others, But the biggest stress and worry in life, that is what will happen to you eternally, is taken care of. As we sang uh, that song this morning, It Is Well With My Soul, that is one of the crucial pieces of being able to actually rest. Even in the midst of all of this stuff that's going on, to be able to say, yeah, life is a mess but it is well with my soul and I can dwell on that and I can take some time and I can focus on that and focus on the relationships that matter and in so doing continue that work. That should give us the ability to carry on and endure and also to be able to pause along the way for reflection and refreshment.